If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, um, I know that for a lot of you, maybe you've seen movies where there's a sequel, and, and the sequel is not very good because it's just retracing the first movie. Have you ever seen a, a sequel like that? Yeah. I, I hope that this sequel today is not that for us because we're going to go through the same text we went through last week and talk about it in a different light from a different perspective um, to help us understand the full meaning of it. So this sequel, I hope, is not one of those where it just retreads the same thing and you're just like, man, this is miserable. Um, We've heard this sermon once before. But I don't think that it is because, see, well, let's read it first, then I'm going to tell you how our main idea this morning is different than our main idea from last week. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, may be true of us this morning that we love your word that we understand that your word has been given to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to love what you have said. Help me to proclaim it rightly. And would you, above all, be glorified as we look into the words of Christ and see what our relationship as Christians should be to the law. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea last week was that Christ fulfills the law because we can't. And that's still true. Christ fulfills the law because you cannot do it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the commands that God gives in his scripture are things that we can maybe sometimes, am I going to not lie? Yeah. But am I always going to not lie? No. We need someone who can come and keep the law. And that's what Christ does. He is the perfect law keeper. Now, this morning, we're going to see from another angle of this, and really just to to get the fullness of of these verses, is that Christ fulfills the law so that we can. So last time was Christ fulfills the law because you can't. But Christ now fulfills the law so that we can. And the question is, well, can we or can't we? And the answer, of course, is, Yes, you can and you can't. You can't make yourself right before God. Only Christ's death on the cross can do that. But Christ seems to think that we should believe and obey his commands. A way of talking about the gospel is this. There's three things for you to remember when maybe you need to talk to somebody, and I hope that you are. I hope that throughout your day, at your job, uh, in your family, as you're just out and about, that you are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people. And for a lot of us, you say, well, where do we start? How do I even do that? Um, Do I need to preach a sermon to them? The answer is no. Um, That probably won't go well. 
um, to just stand up at work and, and preach a sermon, but you can explain to them what it means to follow Jesus. And what the gospel is, the gospel is three things. You need a new record. You have a record, and that record is one that is filled with breaking of God's law. And so Christ comes, and he has a perfect record. And you know what he does with your record and his record? He exchanges them. So that's what we talked about last week, that you need a new record. This week we're going to talk about the other two aspects, is that you need a new life. And to have that new life, you need a new heart. Okay, So I want to review that for you in case you just want to use that one day in the future to help explain the gospel. You need a new record. You need a new life, and you need a new heart. So this morning, we're looking at a new life empowered by a new heart. We're going to get there, but I want to explain, first of all, what Jesus is saying. He has told us that he comes to fulfill the law, and he certainly does so. He takes all the promises. He fulfills the moral and the civil law. He always does what he should do, and he fulfills that ceremonial law that we talked about, the law having to do with purity, cleanliness, holiness and sacrifice and he fulfills it all through his death on the cross well now he goes on he tells us in verse 18 i tell you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota 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 is the way you say it in greek not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished our point this morning is this our first point is that god's law jesus tells us is still in effect God's law is still in effect. It is not as though what so many people say that he came and he destroyed the law, because we know that he says that in verse 17, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to get rid of it. My death on the cross does not make it null and void. It only makes it fulfilled. So he's telling us, we're going to see what it means, the, the, the nuance within that term of fulfilled and the different parts of the law. But God's law is still in effect because, number one, it always has been in effect. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 tell us about this. And uh, are we following along with the note? If we can get that up there so we can folks can follow along with that scripture. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 tell us this. You can turn there in the meantime. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They're a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, God's law always has been in effect in all places at all times. From the beginning, his law has been, his moral law has been in effect, where he says, these are my commands, and you shall do them. There is an argument, I won't go through it all today, but there is an argument to be made where when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, or the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden that God told them not to eat, they broke all ten commandments. There are some who make that argument. We won't go through all that today, but even if they didn't break all of them, they broke a lot of them. Because they made themselves God, right? Because Satan said, you will be like God. And so I, I like that. And so they went and they made themselves like God. They disobeyed their heavenly father, right? Whenever God asked them what happened, they lied and kind of shifted the truth around. They took what was not rightly theirs. They coveted God in his perfection. So all these ways, they, from the beginning, 
God's law was in effect because they broke God's moral law. But not only has it always been in effect, but it's in effect everywhere. Because see, Gentiles, and that's the vast majority of us here in the room, I believe, those folks who are not ethnically Jewish, Gentiles, the ones who didn't have God's law, who never had it revealed to them, which was pretty much the rest of the world, other than that small area there in what is now Israel and what was then Israel, they still do what the law requires. God says they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Why? Because whenever you go around the world, it may not be that they match up perfectly. There may be some cultures where it's wrong to murder and uh, covet and commit adultery, and maybe lying's okay, you know, but, but in general, the same commands are true across all cultures. People know what God's law is because it says he has written it in verse 15 of Romans 2. He has written it on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness. And they have these conflicting thoughts that say, I can do whatever I want because no one's told me I can't. But Paul is saying that all of us know deep down inside what God's law is. And we have thoughts conflicting about it. So God's law always has been, and God's law if we go one more chapter further into Romans 3, verses 28 through 31, is not overthrown. It's not overthrown. It's not abolished. It's not done away with. Paul says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That was last week, right? That is the good news, that Christ fulfills the law for you. Works of the law will not get it done. So we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now look at 31 here closely. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So God says, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And I want you to know that until heaven and earth pass away. So does that mean at the cross, it passes away? Has heaven and earth passed away at the time the cross happens? No. Right? It's, are you still here? Are you still on? Okay. He's not remade heaven and earth with the new heavens and the new earth. As long as heaven and earth are here before they pass away, there's not a part of the law that will pass, or not a bit of the law that will pass until all is accomplished. So, not a single mark is taken away until all is accomplished. Now, the question is, what does he mean by this idea of to accomplish the law? So, last week we talked about these three parts of the law, right? The civil law, which is essentially the moral law for, like, applied to society. God's saying, hey, you need to treat people justly in your dealings with them because that's you loving them. That is you doing what God has said in his Ten Commandments. That was for national Israel. It was setting apart national Israel and is applying the moral law, and it has been accomplished. The ceremonial law we know accomplished its purpose. And if we went and looked at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, we won't go there for the sake of time, but we could look there and see how Christ is the final fulfillment of that ceremonial law of sacrifices. Because the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats could maybe handle your sin for a year, but it could never actually take it away. It could cover that sin up, is the idea, but it never, ever took it away. Now, you know, if there's a problem and you cover it up, is the problem actually fixed? You throw a blanket over it, right? No. 
You have to actually take away the problem. You have to remedy the problem. The blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifices for sin that happened in the Old Testament would not take away sin. They were but a shadow. And we saw this last week in a number of places. They were a shadow of the things to come, right? But the true substance was Christ. It's like holding up your hand and you shine a light. If I shine a light and and, and my hand's right here and you see a shadow on the wall and it looks like my hand, it, it has the same shape of my hand, right? But is it my hand? No. See, the ceremonial law that God gave was a shadow of the substance, which is Christ. Did it look and have similar attributes to that idea of sacrifice for sin? Yeah. But is the shadow of the substance. So, the moral law remains, because it always has been, it always will be, because it flows out of God's character. We would sum this up in the Ten Commandments, and Jesus actually sums it up further, and Lord willing, Casey will preach on this next week, and I say Lord willing because he'll do that, because I pray that this baby's going to be here. And so, Lord willing, I won't be here next week, and Casey can preach on this. And this is by God's providence that, that Casey felt led to preach on this, I think, right? Are you still preaching on that? Okay. On, on the two tables of the law. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're talking about these two tables of the law. If you ever hear me say two tables, here's what I mean. We usually see it on two tablets, and it's usually one through five and six through ten, which makes sense because that's evenly broken up, and I, and I like that. But whenever, actually, theologically, you talk about the two tables of the law, you're talking about one through four, which deals with... God's relationship or man's relationship with God, right? It's having no other gods. It's not making idols, right? It's not taking the Lord's name in vain. And it's honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Then you have commandments 5 through 10. So it's a little uneven, but commandments 5 through 10, and they have to do with your relationship with who? Man, right? So when I say the two tables of the law, and if you're Casey next week to say the two tables of the law, that's what we mean. And I'm going to give away a little bit of his sermon that is the summation. When Jesus preaches, teaches in Matthew 22 on the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which looks an awfully lot like the two what? Tables of the law, right? So God's moral law has not finished its purpose. And actually it has a number of purposes that I want us to look at this morning and to see. It has a number of purposes. The first purpose that God's moral law contains is that of restraining evil. Because here's the thing, is God's moral law, does it actually apply to everyone everywhere at all times? Yes, right? And we see that because the Gentiles who don't have the law do what it requires by nature. So first of all, it restrains evil. Now that requires us to have a belief that that law is good and it's right. And if we actually apply it, it would restrain evil, right? If we, if all of society obeyed God's Ten Commandments, would, there be, would evil be restrained that is not currently being restrained in the midst of our rejection of it? Absolutely. And so for us as a society, we look at God's moral commands and we say, well, you know, should we apply? Like, I hear Christians say, well, maybe we shouldn't apply it to non-Christians. That's kind of, that seems harsh, right? Well, this is God's commands for everybody at, at all times. It should be applied to everyone. And it would do one of the uses, which is to restrain evil. But losing this idea of a universal moral code that God gives us, that's part of the growing evil in our world. Whenever we lose sight that God has a law he has given to us, he has revealed his ways to us, of course evil is going to grow out of that. The second purpose that the law serves 
for us is that of a mirror. So you all know what a mirror is, right? You probably looked at one this morning, getting ready, um, hopefully, right? Um, And you say, when you go up to a mirror, what are you trying to do? You're trying to see what you really look like, right? Because all of us have an idea in our mind of what we'd like to look like. We like to imagine, you know, you look like. And then you wake up in the morning, and are you always kind of taken back by what you actually look like? (laughs) You've had a rough night of sleep, and you're like, is that what I really look like? Mirrors are good for that. (laughs) Amen. That's right. Mirrors are good for that because they show you not what you want to see, but what is actually there. See, God's law that he gives us, his moral law, is there to show us what we actually look like. That's why if you ever see uh, evangelists and apologists, they will go to God's moral law and help people work through how they've broken God's moral law so they understand they actually need a Savior. A lot of people walk around thinking, well, I don't actually need a Savior because I'm actually a pretty good guy. But here's Paul, and here's what he says. This is so interesting. Because Paul was a guy who had this great religious pedigree where he, he, he did so many things right from a human perspective and keeping these human commands that the Pharisees and scribes had. But he knew he was a sinner, dirty, rotten, filthy, just like the rest of us. What shall we say then that the law is sin? Because, see, he's making an argument that the law brought about sin in a sense, right? But it wasn't actually the law's fault because the law is good and it comes from God. Whose fault is it? It's sin dwelling in us, right? So, is the law sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet the law, or if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's a lot to that argument. Okay, We could could sit here and that could be a whole sermon by itself. But the point I want us to draw from this is that Paul understands, and I hope that you understand, that God gives us his law that comes from his character, that shows us his holiness, to be a mirror that we hold up to ourselves every single time we peer into it that causes us to say, huh, maybe I'm not as great as I think I am. Because we will deceive ourselves in thinking how, that we are pretty good. Amen. The law is a mirror. Ernie Reisinger, who wrote the book on law and gospel that I suggested last week, said this, the law was given that grace may be sought. And grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. That's a good word, but I want to to say that first part again. The law was given that grace may be sought. You're not going to seek grace unless you know what the law says. See, once we have the whole, we know how holy God is, and we compare ourselves to it, we begin to get a sense of our situation. I'll give you one more illustration um, that that I just happened to come across last night as I was doing something that had nothing to do with the sermon. But um, the, the idea is this, that if you ever have, anybody ever been around sheep at all, like farming sheep at all? Yeah, me neither. But the person who told this story had been, so I'm going to take their word for it, okay? But luckily, none of y'all have done it, and so you can't call me out on it if it's not true. So when you look at a sheep out in a green field, what color is that sheep 
absolutely going to look like? White, because it's, it's this bright green field behind it. And that contrast, you say, man, that is a good-looking sheep, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's white, clean, spotless, all this stuff. But then all of a sudden, what starts happening if, if a snowstorm comes in and a, and a thick blanket of snow is on the ground covering that green grass? What do you all of a sudden, can you tell about that sheep? It's not really white, is it? It's kind of dirty, right? And, and so that's interesting. And I, I have seen that as I've gone about and see, you know, sheep, they kind of look white, but you get up close to them, they actually kind of can be dirty. That is the reality of our lives and our holiness. That whenever we compare ourselves to the perfect holiness of God, what seems to be our holiness that we think is so great and the good works that we pile up and say, God, look how good this is. Against the backdrop of God's perfection, we go, hmm, maybe it's not as good as I thought. The third thing the moral law does for us, the the third purpose of the moral law is to show us what is pleasing to the Father. So, this is kind of a point within a point. The next main point I want to make, though, is this, that God empowers us to live out his law. As we look at what is pleasing to the Father, this third purpose of God's moral law, I want us to understand in the bigger picture that God empowers us to live out that law. So he gives this to us, and he says, this is what I'm like, and this is how I would have you to live. It's kind of like a family code, right? Does every family have different rules? Yeah, every family have different rules. Some families, are you allowed to wear shoes in the house? No. And some families, you just walk right on in, right? Some families, um, do you ever, there, there's some things where like, you never eat in the living room, right? Anybody have one of those families you never eat in the living room, ever? Nobody? Good. Okay. And but some people, it's like, we only eat in the living room. What are you talking about? Like, the table is covered with bills and papers and stuff. We don't, and so you have these family rules, these family codes, Whenever you come into a family, what you have to learn is what is pleasing to those parents. See, God gives us his law, and he says, I'm not going to cause you to go around and be guessing what, how you're supposed to live as my son or daughter. Because see, when we get saved, one of the pictures that God gives us is that of being adopted into God's family. We went from being those who were orphaned away from God we had no hope in this world, and he takes us into his family, and he takes you and makes you a son and a daughter. But, he says, you're, actually, you're not just going to be part of my family in name only, but you're going to learn to actually live as one of my family. So he teaches us this family code, this way to live. He tells us that we are to live in a certain way. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. We hear that all the time, right? Listen to verse 9. Not a result of works, okay, good, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God has prepared for us good works that we should walk in them. We are to live a certain way to please our Father. Let me give you another one. Matthew 28, verse 20. This is the Great Commission. And we so often are talking about the evangelistic side of this that we miss the discipleship aspect. And here's what I mean. We, we focus so much on go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what is that only making? A convert. What's it not making? A disciple, right? Right? Because there's a second half to it. 
We don't just get you saved, get you to come up here, make a profession of faith, dunk in some water and say, be on your way. The second half of that, the second half of Christ's commission is to teach them all that I've commanded you. Everything that I've commanded you. And if Jesus is God, and he is, that means all of his commands in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All those moral commands from the Ten Commandments. And those things, those expoundings that he does, which isn't the right way to say that, but all the ways he expounds on his law through the Gospels and through the epistles that are written. We are to teach God's people to obey everything that he has commanded you. That's my job. Okay? And so a lot of people say, well, listen, you start teaching on things like the law, you're getting to stuff that's not the gospel. And I'm telling you, my job is to preach the gospel to you. My job is to give you the law in light of the gospel and not as empty and dead works righteousness. But my job is to fill the Great Commission, to help you learn how to follow Jesus, not just into salvation, not just into baptism, but into actually doing all that he commanded you to do. So how do we do this, though? Because we get on this side of it, and we say, okay, God, so let, let's say you're convinced now. Because, I mean, I, I understand that I'm having to convince maybe some of you, because for a lot of us, we look and we say, well, the idea of God's law is good, you know, it's okay, but I don't really think I should follow it, it's passed away. I've heard all those things from all kinds of teaching. So maybe that you say, I'm convinced, I need to follow God's law, I need to do the things that he commands, so now, how do I do it? Good question. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. This is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And he's not talking about just physical Israel here. He's talking about spiritual Israel. All those who are in Christ, these true sons of Abraham who believe in the Messiah. He says, I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, he says, I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to empower you to do this. I'm going to give you a new heart. And that's the other side of it, right? You need a new life. You need a new way of living in light of the gospel. But the only way that you're going to do it rightly is not from a place where you're going to just grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to obey all of God's commands. You need a new heart. And when we receive the gospel, Christ says he gives us a new heart in Ezekiel. That's part of that new covenant promise. So I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit. But for us, a lot of times, we're not living in the power of that new heart and new spirit. We're trying to just clench our teeth and just power through it. But see, we have to live out of love, out of a new heart that looks at our God who saves us from our sins. I think for a lot of times it's easy to see God as because he is so holy and set apart. And, and, and I, here's the thing. I'm going to preach and, and highlight the fact that God is holy and set apart because that is so lacking from so much of preaching that happens these days. We have a God who is righteous and holy and he is not like you. But at the same time, he is a father who is incredibly kind and loving and patient with you. And he gives you his spirit. And he gives you a new heart. And, he, and because of the fact that he has loved us the way he has, it should lead us not into, fine, whatever, I'll do it, obedience. But into, if this is a God who is so good, 
that he would lay his life down on the cross for me, that must mean that the commands that he has given me are good too. Amen? Amen. If our God is that good that he would die on the cross for us and he cares that much for us, that must mean the commands that he gives us to live aren't just to be a buzzkill for us. The standards he gives for his people and his church are not just things to bind us down and weigh us down, but instead they are things that are meant to be freeing us from the death in this world. Christian, if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to live in light of God's law, to see that it is actually good. Whenever you're discipling other people, and I hope you are, I hope you're taking young Christians and you're showing them how to live the light or how to live in light of the gospel and how to live in light of God's word, how to actually teach people to obey all that He's commanded you. Teach others that the law is good. Why? Because verse 19 says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a scary proposition, is it not? Because, see, there are teachers out there who will look at you and say, don't worry about that law. Don't worry about God's ways. Don't worry about his commands, okay? You just come, and you believe the gospel, and whatever. Jesus says the kind of person who is teaching others to not obey God's commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those, whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest, or not the greatest, we call great in the kingdom of heaven. So Christian, as you go and you make disciples, please don't stop at converts. Make people actual disciples of Jesus, learning to obey and love the commands he's given. I want to encourage you something too, okay? Be aware that there are teachers out there who will teach you to just relax the commands of God. Don't worry about it. Listen, that was a long time ago. They had different stuff going on. Um, You know, you have the gospel now, so don't worry about God's commands. That is not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. He said, whoever relaxes them are called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And Christian, if you're here this morning, you've not done this yet. You've been living in a way where you've not really given God's commands much thought. I want to encourage you to reorient your life. Following what, God's, what God commands is simple, but it's not easy. Living in light of his truth is just looking at it and doing it. But it's not easy, and don't let anybody ever tell you that it is. But John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those are Jesus' words. How do we do it? If I had to sum it up in two ways, it would be love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But make sure you define love God's way and not the world's way. The world will tell you that love looks like a lot of different things. But when you define it God's way, you're going to do exactly what he's told us to do. Now also, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, uh, you don't see him as your savior, I want to ask you to do something for me. As you think about God's standard and God's laws and what makes you right or not before him, Don't compare yourself to the world. As you look out at the world, don't compare yourself to the world and say, well, you know, I know I do this, this, and this, but have you seen those people I work with? They are way worse, right? Because what you're doing is you're taking the, the perceived whiteness of your wool 
as a sheep, and you're, you're comparing it to that green grass, right? Instead of the perfect holiness of God. Actually, don't even compare yourself to other Christians, because guess what? On this side of eternity, all of us are falling and struggling. We're going to struggle with sin and, and uh, word, thought, and deed every single day in so many ways. So don't look at yourself and say, you know what, that person says they're a Christian, but I know they, they got mad at me the other day, and I don't get mad at people. Don't compare yourself to a Christian. The only person to compare yourself to is Christ. Here's what Jesus says in verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to talk about folks who, from a human perspective, were righteous, scribes and Pharisees had it going on. Now, we know better because Christ laid bare the legalistic godlessness of their ways. For example, when it came to talking about the Sabbath, right? Whenever he talked about how you should rest, they said, well, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? Well, it just means to not carry a burden. Okay, well, what is a burden? A burden, they said... I'm trying to remember all the different things they said. Was I didn't write them down, and I should have. I didn't plan on going into this, but I think it's important for you to know. A burden is, is any weight greater than a fig. It's like, well, how big of a fig, you know? Um, a burden is writing more than two characters on a piece of paper. A burden is a, a, a breaking a piece of reed that's any bigger than, a, than what you'd use to write with. Like crazy stuff. And they said, this is our burden. And if we, we, we want to, we are so concerned about obeying God's law to rest on the Sabbath that we are willing to, to make the kind of work that we can do on the Sabbath, like two letters, writing down two letters, right? You want to talk about people who, from a human perspective, were obedient to some commands? That's them. But whose commands were they actually obedient to? Their own. But they thought they were righteous. I want you to know something. There are not many people today who could say, I have a righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees. And so if we don't have a righteousness coming close to the scribes and Pharisees, how could we ever have one that exceeds it? You can't. I can't. No one is that crazy. Because that's what it takes is a craziness to say, I'm only write two letters on, on Sunday. What you need is a new life a new heart, and a new record. And the only, thing, the only way that comes is through Jesus Christ, who has a righteousness that is perfect, who has a righteousness that is the standard, who has a righteousness that never disobeyed any law of God. And all that's going to make you right before God is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, and the only righteousness that that is is Christ's. So for you, would you turn to Christ this morning? Would you stop comparing yourself to Christians you know, to unbelievers you know, and would you instead look to Christ and say, I cannot keep the law. I never have and I never will, but you can give me a new record of law keeping. You can give me a new record of righteousness. You can give me a new life and you can give me a new heart. And then... If that's you and you say, I want to follow Jesus and I want to trust in him. I want what he did on the cross, that death he died as the penalty for my law breaking. I want to believe in that. But I want to encourage you that if that's you this morning, count the cost and understand that he has called you to something even more than that. He's called you to keep his commands. But only because you love him back. 
to keep his commands through loving him. You don't keep them to make him love you. He already does, and he proved that on the cross. But he has called you to see the love he has for you on the cross, to believe in it, and then to follow him, whatever it takes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you because we are not good enough. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have showed us your holiness through your law. And you've not just given it to us as a mirror, but you've given it to us as that means through which we can understand how to please you. Lord, for those of us who are here and who are Christians, may we live as folks who love your law. May we say, as it's said in your word, that we delight in it. Not that we begrudgingly keep it, but we actually delight in it. And may a watching world see a difference in us because of how we delight in your law. Lord, may we always remember, though, that keeping law has never saved a single person. May we all understand that it's only Christ's perfect law-keeping, his perfect record that will save us. And Lord, for the person who's here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, would you, by your Holy Spirit, cause them to lay down their attempts to make you happy with them and to love them? keeping your law imperfectly and would you show them that their only hope is to put their entire faith and hope in Jesus the perfect law giver and law keeper who kept it for them we pray this in Christ's name Amen